Welcome to the Inside Aesthetics Podcast. Our mission is to strip away the myths and hype that often surround the aesthetics industry. Inside Aesthetics aims to get to the bottom of the important topics that concern medical and allied health professionals, as well as the consumers themselves. We'll be showcasing the thoughts and experiences of experts in their respective fields. Each podcast will focus on a specialty, including surgery, non-surgical procedures, nutrition, well-being, and business knowledge from the personalities that have helped shape our industry. This podcast and its related publications provide news and general educational information about cosmetic procedures and well-being. It does not promote or endorse any cosmetic procedure, brand, or product. You should seek professional medical assessment before considering any treatment. Our guest today is Dr. Raj Aquila, a cosmetic physician from the UK who has established himself as an elite and globally respected facial aesthetic injector. He owns two clinics in Cheshire and London, and he runs his own Injectable Masterclass Academy. He's also a UK and global ambassador for Allegan. He's a pioneer in the industry and continuously refines the art and science of medical facial aesthetics. We are here with Dr. Raj Aquila. Aquila. We were just discussing how you pronounce your name in the cab, weren't we? Aquia. Aquia. So it's, it's Portuguese Ch- Indian. It's whatever you want it to be, really. Um, we're honoured to have you here, Raj. Um, we've been friends for a number of years, but I haven't seen you in a number of mm. years because I've obviously been in Australia. Why are you here in Australia? What, what, what have you been up to? You know what? We were just saying the same thing yesterday. I've not been here for three years now. Um, I think it's because, you know, uh, when I do a lot of international training and really that is focused around AMI, so Allegan Medical Institute, and they have um, commercial priorities in different uh, territories. Yeah. Right now, I've been in the US for two years and uh, in the Middle East predominantly. But of course, back in those days, APAC was a huge uh, priority and of course you were massively on the rise so yeah um but i think because you did so well you were just left to get on with it we didn't need you no <laughs> so uh, we've obviously been at Stephen news conference this weekend aesthetics 2019 H- how did you find it like and uh, i mean Stephen designed it deliberately mm. to be quite different you know for me that there are three types of congress there's obviously the uh, the standalone which is done by the corporates so you know if i'm working for allegan then we'll do these huge standalones of at least a thousand people per time and that's an international event then of course we have the uh, the world majors the congresses which are the amwc's or the imcasses of uh, and alike where all the different companies are represented and we have a really multidisciplinary faculty but very elite what i loved about this was is that it was truly a union of all of the different providers in aesthetic medicine across uh, really Australasia because don't forget that we had a lot of Asian countries represented uh, at this meeting so I think in my experience it was the first time I've been to Australia and seen a truly unified and a, uh, a, a sort of a conglomerate approach which was very healthy it certainly is very conducive to you know facilitate brilliant learning and the other thing is that you know it, this harmony that is now starting to become very evident in Australia means that I think the industry is going to be uh, it'll be f- for the better for the industry yeah i mean how would you reflect what's happening say in the UK where you know there are issues with regulation mm. and you know any man and his dog can use fillers 
versus, say, a, a country like Australia? Well, it's different levels, Jake. You know, in the UK, um, there is no regulation. So the bottom end is very deep. And really, you know, um, a lot of people fall down to that level, both the consumers and the professional, the, the providers. Um, the top end is becoming increasingly slim. Mm. So that's like the elite or master level. But then there's this huge middle class uh, which has a massive variance in it, both on quality and price point and also in terms of results and let's face it, also safety. Um, so I think that that lends itself towards a, an industry or a, a marketplace where the consumer loses uh, confidence yeah. because there's a lot more bad stuff going on there. Australia have been fairly rigorous in maintaining very good standards. And of course, the commitment to medical education is unprecedented here. And, you know, long may that last because it's for the good of the industry. Do you think that um, this bottom end that you're referencing in the UK, when you say people fall down that hole, both mm. consumers and, and providers, I, I guess from the consumer perspective, do you think they're falling down that hole simply because of price or do you think it's lack of education and understanding of the differences in quality? Yeah, I think the first uh, the, the, this, the first stimulus is price. Mm. So if they're price sensitive and they fall to the bottom because of something costing £99, then, you know, it's the fault of not just the provider, but also the consumer. Mm -hmm. um, and then whatever happens after that really is falls on both of their shoulders. Whereas, you know, I think that when you have, um, you don't have a bottom end, it actually makes the central part of the market much slimmer. And it makes the top part of the market, the high end part, uh, taller. So it means that the general quality is, is better. Yeah, right. Because um, laser clinics just opened there. Well, yep. they're about to, or they've opened a couple of clinics. And I guess they have always positioned themselves here in Australia as, I wouldn't say, um, gosh, I mean, maybe it's better for you to sort of sort of yeah, see I how mean, you feel about because I think they're sort of trying to position themselves where it's affordable, but trying to provide a quality that's... Uh, Let's face it, in this uh, sector, you know, uh, cheap is cheerful, but it's also low quality. Mm. Um, often they're not using good quality products uh, and as a result of that, then, you know, there's a potential uh, for safety issues. But also, let's face it, the results are not going to be as good either. Mm. And that can only be detrimental to the to the, the population perception of the industry. Yeah, right. Being a cowboy industry and being amateur. I mean, I guess just to qualify that, in the UK, you literally have several hundred types of fillers, uh, stuff's imported. It, it's just like the Wild West of yeah. injectables. Here in Australia, it's it's definitely not that case. It's highly regulated. And so even, you know, the chain clinics that we were discussing, mm. it, it's it's very limited and, and standardised, I guess. But yeah, it, it worries me what happens in the UK. There's less margin for error when you have very high regulatory and, uh, and uh, you know, this kind of uh, compliance frameworks in place. Yeah. Um, however, though, it does therefore limit... Um, the ability for achieving excellence. Yeah. Because, you know, I think people who are true artists and they really have a lot of flair, you know, they can use maybe fringe products or maybe less known materials to their benefit uh, and create masterpieces like that. Seems uh, somewhat of a challenge because the everyday person wants to have these treatments, but not every person can afford yeah. that top end. Exactly. So it's trying to find that, that middle ground yeah. where you don't want it to become commoditized to the point where you're compromising the quality and the safety yeah. of patients, but making it something that's affordable to everyone. I'm going to give you the best example of that, Jake, actually, because the last two years in the US, the reason why I was sent in there to do this tour is because 
you know, because of the uh, the FDA, the availability of their products is actually very uh, Slim, primitive. Yeah. yeah. So they're running around four years behind us. And as a result of that and the lack of availability of product selection, actually the injectors are not achieving anywhere near as good a results. Yeah. So what we were trying to do there was to t go in and teach them how to use those limited number of materials to achieve the best possible results. So that takes a special kind of education. Yeah. Mm. I probably should have asked this at the start, but mm. you need no introduction to most injectors listening, but what, what's your background and, and, and what's your sort of position now within Allegan and, and globally? I mean, originally, um, go back 20 years, um, you know, I was doing a GPSI derm job and I was just doing facial skin cancer. And actually, when we were doing um, facial tumor excisions and we had scars that were un aesthetically unacceptable, we were just doing scar revision. Yeah. Now, most of those were just uh, re-excisions. But then I started to tinker around with uh, the old school collagen and HA injectables. And actually what was happening was the scars were improving, but also, you know, the skin quality was also improving. So that was appealing to the middle aged woman. And uh, they started to ask more questions about that. Then, of course, we were using uh, botulinum toxin for wrinkle relaxation. And of course, then there was the beginning. Uh, but at that time, Jake, I didn't frankly have the first clue what the hell I was doing. I don't think any of us did. So I was making really really quite a mess of various, uh, you know, facial structures like, you know, blown up lips and cheeks, etc. But these women loved it because, um, you know, big cheeks and big lips and high eyebrows and smooth foreheads was uh, appealing to them. Now, it's taken me 20 years to refine that art and understand exactly where our clinical endpoints should be mm. to hit the jackpot in terms of aesthetic ideal. And once we were able to do that and really to fine tune and make precise our um, artistic endpoints, we were able to generate, you know, real masterpieces and, and, and results which our patients have become truly addicted to. Yeah. So your role now with Allegan, for example, you, you're mainly in the States and the Middle East. No, I mean, I, I do worldwide. For example, you know, this year they launched their new filler and uh, we I launched that in pretty much every continent. Right. Um, the issue, though, with the Allegan piece was really, I think when you start to develop a practice, you know, you do go on the watch with the from the corporates and a, a big account means that you're generally successful. So they want to know why. Mm. And actually in the old days, that was about 10 years back, you know, when I was um, under the mentorship of Maritza de Maya. Um, and then I started to, you know, work a lot as a global KOL. Well, that really enhanced my clinical practice. So actually, it's a positive cycle, which actually boosts not just your own professional capabilities, but it grows your practice even more. Yeah. Um, so it's medical education actually is beneficial to everybody. Yeah, absolutely. So you mentioned about big cheeks, big lips. We've got a epidemic here in, mm. in Australia at the moment. <laughs> Why do you think, and we discussed this at the conference, but and I know some of you have put on the spot on stage mm. to ask this question, but why do you think people are asking for it and why are they happy with it? And yet we as injectors are not. What, what's going on? Uh, you've got two issues here. One is uh, cultural and societal. So, you know, if you look at... Uh, the social media and you look at the, the modern press and how they influence and almost bully and coerce young women particularly to uh, look a certain way they're going to be asking for big lips that are you know, almost bursting out of their skins uh, in a 50-50 ratio and completely disproportionate to the other surrounding facial structures. Um, the other issue is that you know I think that um, the quality of the injectors has genuinely deteriorated. Mm. If there is more and more injectors appearing every day around the world, then naturally 
there is going to be fewer and fewer good ones because on general mass, um, they are catering for a, a larger proportion of the population. What that means is that the society actually start to tolerate bad results and they almost, it's not that they accept it, they think that it is good. Mm. Now, when they have a good result in front of them, they can't see it because there's really no it's not discernible, there's no visible result because it's not big enough or it's not shiny enough or it's not smooth enough. So actually it becomes undesirable. And what is happening here is that there's a very clear segmentation within the consumer space where they actually will choose their practitioner based on what they what they desire and the practitioner will end up with the practice that they truly deserve i agree I based think, on their uh, values an, an injector will indirectly um you know they'll, they'll make their own clientele by their own style and and vice versa the mm. clientele will either bully an injector or, or not go yep. there again Mm. So it's, it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. Yeah, so can I just uh, come on to that in terms of motivation? Where there's financial motivation, you're basically screwed from the start. Um, you will end up in a low-end practice because you're going to end up with a commoditized practice that's selling one syringe at a time and, or one or two areas of botulinum toxin. So what happens then is that, um, you know, you end up with a practice with revolving door patients. You know, those are the patients that come in, probably based on some kind of marketing and PR or social media, um, and they come in through the door, they have their one intervention, one syringe isn't going to cure anything, and certainly one or two areas is not going to cure anything. So they pay their money and walk out through that revolving door, and you won't see them again, because they'll find that treatment cheaper elsewhere. Correct. Now, when you assess a patient properly, and you assess them based on parameters, which is actually essential for their happiness. So um, making sure that the perception of their mood and health is optimum, that you beautify or masculinize or feminize them properly, and also you conform very well to geometric standards. You make them a 10 out of 10 for themselves, the best version of them. When they walk out of the door, no matter how much that costs, they are never going to go anywhere else because they can't Google that and find it anywhere else. You're unique as a, as a practitioner. So therefore your practice becomes a, um, a long-term practice because those patients are like family to you. They stay with you pretty much for the rest of your professional career. And that means that those practices, they don't just have excellent levels of retention, but also they become extremely successful, both in a professional sense, but also in a financial sense. But let's face it, uh, Jake, it's also extremely satisfying to have that kind of practice. Yeah. So we've um, got a significant number of listeners that are practitioners, uh, particularly nurses and so on. What would your advice be for someone that's looking to get into the industry and wants to develop that kind of practice for themselves? How mm. do you think they go about that in, in a, I guess, in a highly competitive marketplace where you're trying to differentiate yourself? Look, I think that it's very difficult to come into this marketplace right now. Mm. It's oversaturated, but there's so much bottom end. Actually, you're going to have to enter that, that mm. lower end space initially. You can't just enter the top. Um, and you've got to almost do your time. You've got to work your way up the hierarchy and, and you know, within the structure of the industry. However, if your motivation is sound and it comes from a good solid base, which generally should be from an artistic base, uh, that you're a creative person and you're an artistic individual and you really thrive in creating perfection and, and you're precise and you're, you know, you're meticulous in your approach, I think you'll go a long way. But I think if you're just doing it on the side, which a lot of people do, you know, they've got a day job. You know, it might be in special care baby unit as a midwife in the daytime and at nighttime, they're doing a few injections here and there. 
because they want to top up their income, you may as well just forget about it. Because yeah. if you want to do this properly, you've got to commit to this 24-7. Mm. And I certainly inject every day for at least 10 hours a day, at least six days a week. Mm. Yeah, look, there are, there'll be injectors listening here saying, I don't understand because, you know, my client wants their frown lines done or mm. lips. It's a very isolated subunit of the face and that's how most injectors inject let's be real so can you try and explain to people listening what what your philosophy is and how you approach a face and and what you know yeah, sure. this is based on the md codes but you've obviously developed your own style for sure yeah so yeah can you just give us an insight into that well what you're describing there jake is a, a symptomatic presentation so when patients come in they'll often identify symptoms that were they first developed during the aging process now typically that could be in the early 20s for a woman um they are typically lines and wrinkles in in dynamic parts of the face that would be forehead lines frown lines crow's feet lines maybe nasolabial fold now if we were really stupid enough to listen to the patients requests of what they want and only deliver that you'll never keep them because uh, putting a, um, a you know res, a, a resolution to one of their symptomatic problems is like putting a sticking plaster on it just falls off so what we need to do is to tap into what they truly need based on emotion uh, life um, health communication success in life um, and those parameters are around things like facial vectors, uh, looking sad or moody during aging, um, having sagging and the perception of tiredness during aging, mm. um, the loss of attractive light and shade in the face, so severe disruptions of light and shade where the cutaneous retaining ligaments insert as opposed to there being smooth transitions which confers youthfulness and attractiveness. And also the loss of geometric um, relationships of uh, not just facial features, but also the different structures against one another. That's yeah. really to do with ratios and proportions. So if you communicate to a patient when they're coming in with lines and wrinkles in a way which is all about the um, conformity towards the best version of, this, of themselves to look fresh, healthy, rested, happy, less moody, no evidence of stress, physical or emotional, looking geometrically beautiful so that you're looking at that individual it becomes addictive because they are so spectacular, you can't take their eyes off them. Now, when you talk to a patient in that kind of language, they will become addicted to the conversation. And at the end of that conversation, when you then deliver a treatment plan to them, I'll guarantee you that most patients will sign up to that plan. Yeah. The only restriction, of course, is a budgetary limitation because this is expensive, more expensive in Australia than it is in the UK, by the way. Mm -hmm. um, and I think then what happens is you must respect that and stage it out in a way which is affordable to the patient. One of the, um, I guess, systemic issues that I've noticed, I mean, I employ, I don't know, 12, 13 injectors across my clinics. Yeah. And something that I've noticed with all of them, especially the ones that are coming into it is I want to learn this advanced treatment. I want to learn how to do temples. I want to learn how to do jawline, yeah. off-label, et cetera. And it seems like all of them, to a certain extent, want to skip the basics, which is your consult, um, getting the basics right. It's like, I don't, it's like I don't know what language to say it in um, to 
reinforce how important it is but like everything that you're you're preaching or talking about comes back to that initial conversation and actually having um, explaining and educating to the client and what, exactly yeah how do you sort of yeah you know the the best way to explain that is uh you know for example i don't know this city and if i'd have hired a car today and drove here i couldn't have found this place because it's really it's obscure yeah. <laughs> in the middle of nowhere unless i you know got your address and I put the address and the zip code into the GPS. It gave me the route, the ETA and the distance that I need to travel and how much that would cost in terms of fuel, etc. Um, so I could plan that out and I'd be here at the right time and I'd, I'd, I'd be at the right place. But what's happening is that people are getting in these aesthetic cars and they're starting the engine and they're just driving aimlessly and they're just getting lost because no one's taking the time to identify the destination. If we identify the destination, the clinical or the aesthetic endpoint for every single patient, which gets them to their 10 out of 10, you're going to hit the jackpot every time. But if you just start injecting aimlessly into temples or jawlines, as you just said there, because, you know, this is the trend, uh, you're going to create nightmares. Mm -hmm. And uh, some of these nightmares are, are um, they're unreversible. Truly horrific. Yeah. We're talking about blindness and yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's been topical because of the... Uh, you know, blindness in New Zealand and Sydney in the last couple of years. Yeah. Um, so to, to, we, we've sort of touched on the MD codes. What, what are they and how have you sort of modified your practice to, you know, fulfill your philosophy? If I go back maybe six to eight years ago, um, I started to realise that there was a definite benefit to injecting in a sequential in a, um, with a, some kind of methodology um, so that you are systematic in your approach. It tends to produce uh, more reproducible and consistent results. The other thing is that as a teacher, it's um, it's uh, it's teachable because I can I can get people to repeat the same thing over and over again, and we can achieve fairly consistent results with that approach. The only restriction to that is, uh, you know, if we have a cookie cutter uh, approach to every patient. We're going to get it wrong, Jake, because, you know, all patients of all different ethnicities and different facial structures and sizes and all sorts of different, you know, requirements are going to need a different plan. Mm -hmm. So therefore, we need the artistic eye to be able to, you know, use something like MD codes, which is a, it's basically a structured injection um, plan or protocol and create a tailor-made or bespoke plan, which is uh, only for that particular patient. Yeah. I mean, when I learned the MD codes several years now, the, the transformative thing to my practice was exactly what you said. It was tapping into the emotional motivation of why is someone coming to my clinic. So, you know, they might ask for frown lines, but when you boil it down to why are you here, do you feel tired, saggy, angry, sad? And they go, yeah, I feel knackered, but I didn't think you could do anything, so I didn't mention it. That's when you really tap into the gold. Exactly. Because you can literally, as you said, make someone walk out and feel and look more confident yeah. from an injectable. That's kind of crazy. Yeah. So let's talk about uh, codes and let's talk about uh, um, protocols or formulas, which is an interesting uh, space right now. Um, in terms of teaching, I can make a formula for every single um, emotional attribute. And that means that you can actually teach a patient the individual points that they need to stop them from looking angry or stopping them from looking mean, or make them look more trustworthy. Mm. Do you understand? Yeah. Um, I talked yesterday in the show about this, uh, he's a really cute boy, and I said, do you want to look innocent or dangerous? <laughs> and he says he doesn't know what that, you know, what he wants, and I, he's somewhere in between. And I said, listen, do you want to um, look like you uh, are in a boy band, 
or do you want to look like David Beckham? And he says, boy band every day of the week. So he wants to look like cute. Now, to make someone look cute, for example, you would improve the convexity of his forehead. You would narrow his nose and turn the tip up. You would make the medial part of his cheek more convex so he looked more like a boy. Rather less than square, a mature man. Less dominating. And you'd soften his jawline. You wouldn't make him so angular. And mm. you'd also increase the aversion of his lips. So you think there is a... F and now when... Listen, when you start talking with patients in that language, they love it. Yeah. It shows that you really know your stuff. But also and people wouldn't have believed that's achievable. Uh, because it's only just starting to become achievable now. Most people, would you agree, assume it's a genetic lottery. You're either born with it or you're yeah. not. That's it. Um, um, we've all seen uh, before and afters of people now, fairly either prominent people or within our practices. And you'll, they may have presented to us as a 5 out of 10 and they end up as a 10 yeah. with injections. Yeah. Just to illustrate um, your point about the boy band and, and the dangerous, yeah. etc. So Arthur Swift, who was injecting mm. uh, this weekend as well, he had a great video of a guy who looked slightly feminine mm. And then, I don't know how they did it, they took multiple uh, frames of, of the same face, but they ever so slightly masculinized him till mm. he looked severely almost Neanderthal. Mm -hmm. And so you're saying there's a spectrum of masculinity. Yeah. You can be, you know, Absolutely. girly, a bit elfish, up to Do you know you should... Crazy. The best way to understand that is actually take, uh, take a cohort of women's views on this. You know there is a certain bastard look... Uh, which is basically where you look <laughs> too um, uh, mean, untrustworthy, and uh, essentially someone that you would never take home to introduce to your parents. Um, so there's also the boyish, cute, innocent look where they get away with murder. And, you know, it's who the individual is. What do they do for the job? What kind of relationships do they have? Mm. Um, where do they want to go in life? And frankly, I can just deliver it by injecting them properly. Yeah, I, I can't remember who said this on stage, but someone said uh, there's a cohort of women they've done studies on, which man would you choose? Yeah. And the single women who are not in a relationship yeah. preferred the more overly masculine, edgy, dominant, yeah. edgy, etc. Whereas those married women yeah. want sort of slightly dulled up, but neither extreme. Yeah, it's so interesting. It's, fa it's fascinating. So um, essentially, I will tailor make the aesthetic result for a male according to the position of their life. So if they are um, single, young, um, and kind of a bit spunky, and they've, uh, you know, they want to kind of get <laughs> around you, a little Raj? bit, you know what I mean? <laughs> Where are you on the spectrum? Uh, I'm, are I'm, you a spunk? I'm, I'm, I'm metro. I think I'm right in the middle. So, uh, <laughs> yeah. so, so I think, I think, you know, those guys, you can give them all the edges and angles and uh, and light and shade interactions that you want they're just going to get better but once they have a kid mm. and the wife's at home you need to change that because she's going to be very unhappy with him walking around looking like that especially like at peacock. night yeah. <laughs> I've also read somewhere that women will be attracted to a different look depending on where in their cycle they are yeah exactly so at so, certain times i yeah. want a like more neanderthal looking guy yeah during yeah. during ovulation times when they're more horny basically uh, <laughs> they want to have a more sort of dangerous and edgy kind of guy but you know when they're <laughs> during they're having their period they want to be having more um, safety security nurturing mm. and love so therefore softness is the key and convexities
Yeah. Gosh, so you'd be like injecting guys twice a month, well, depending. I think it's going to cost a lot of money to be able to switch <laughs> <Yeah>. that. <laughs> now, another theme of this weekend was, you know, we can all go on stage and do 16, 20 mils. That's yeah. fantastic. You can do some incredible things. But the reality is that that's not yeah. realistic for Call most people. Porn, porn injecting. Mm. It's yeah. not real. <laughs> now, what, what's your clientele like? I mean, of course, you're running a high-end practice yeah, that might um, be different but what, what's your philosophy what do you think yeah is so um i only have patience for full face yeah period uh, you can't come and see me for lips uh, they don't get through the never mind they don't not just get through the door they don't get past the phone so um but it's in everyone's best interest because i, I don't want to waste their time and vice versa however you know when we have patients that are having full face if you're coming to me as a nine out of 10, you're very mild requirements. So, you know, it's going to be relatively cheap. And we just need to identify not what needs to be done to, to nudge you from a nine to a 10. But if you're moderate, or means if you're slightly older or middle age, um, and um, maybe you come as a, as a seven to eight out of 10. Put, putting this delicately, there's more signs of aging. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But they've not got a lot of sag. They've just got symptomatic um, issues. Yeah. Then... Um, uh, they will be using a little bit more product and they'll be coming probably twice. Then you've got a severe patient who's advanced aging with sagging, etc., uh, multiple symptoms. They need more product and they need more time. So three sessions typically. So here's my formula. Mild, moderate, severe. This is my clinic, by the way, the way I run it. So that would be typically two, four or six syringes. Okay. And are you explicit with people? You tell them, oh, yeah. sorry, you're severe. However... We don't, we don't say, we don't talk about syringes ever. We just say that your requirement is greater per session. So it just means that um, when I'm dealing with someone who's younger, um, they're going to get away with two syringes. Uh, someone who's a bit older, who we need to start injecting more structurally in specific areas, like, for example, in the cheekbone or in the temple or maybe even the jawline and chin, then it would be maybe four syringes. And a more advanced aging patient with, uh, you know, more significant sagging means that their skull has shrunk and their skeletal projection requirements are greater. They need more syringes, maybe six to eight syringes. You've got to space that out over two or three sessions so that they can afford it. Yeah. Plus also, if you see them at monthly intervals, you allow a one month period for the product to integrate into the tissue. And also let's not forget that there's a huge biostimulatory effect of the material in the tissue, fibroblastic stimulation, so upregulation of intrinsic HA and collagen, etc. So there's a lot of benefits to doing it that way. It's very interesting, though, that not one of my patients knows what a syringe is. They don't know how many syringes they have of what product. They just walk out with the result. And at the till, they pay for the result, which is based on their severity. Yeah. It seems like um, in some ways we've created a rod for our own back. Completely. Yeah. And unfortunately, um, the injectors of today, because of this, uh, this uh, phenomenon, uh, they are being bullied by the patients. Yeah. So patients will come in who needs multiple requirements and says, here's uh, 300 bucks for one syringe and I want you to sort out uh, this, this and this. But whose fault is that? Has the industry created that? The industry's that? created it, yeah, because we didn't step in early enough because you know why we weren't sophisticated enough from the start? Well, we didn't know what we didn't know, really, no, because it's, exactly. it's an industry that's just accelerated yeah, yeah. over the last... I mean, I remember when fillers first started coming onto the mm. market, it was just botulinum toxins, and all of a sudden, fillers, and then yeah. it's it's just been this... Well, look at the US model. Unfortunately, it's even worse. So not just that they pay per syringe, but they pay for botulinum toxin per unit. Yeah. So they We are do that in Australia, by the way. Do you? Mm. No. 
Oh, yes. wow, sorry. I'm so sorry to hear that. <laughs> um, so that's even more nightmare because then your um, your patients and their ability to uh, to shop around is far greater. Yeah. And your attention is just going to go down. And then they come in with their friend because yeah. their friend had 30 units and they want 30 units right. too, but their face is different. <laughs> However, from a, you know, David, you're a business owner. Yeah. From a business perspective, mm. you know, if, if you do the UK model where, where you advertise area, it, that, that means nothing. You could be a heavily wrinkled male yeah. versus a, a female forehead in the scenario. Yeah. It doesn't make sense to sort of have a price. It's nonsense. Yeah, but Jake, so, so, so my solution to that is having one cost for botulinum toxin for an all-you-can-eat approach. Cover which all is, bases. It's, if, if you only need one area or if you need four areas, it's the same cost. But the reality is that because we've created that mm. beast, people roughly know what it should cost. Yeah. And and that you won't be able to get away with that now. We we've we've the boats the horse is bolted. Yeah, well, let's try and look at it another way. Let's talk about restaurants and uh, you know, where you would like to eat. Look, if you want to eat at McDonald's, that's so so be it. You can go and have a, a you know, a happy meal for like five dollars. But if you want to go for a Michelin star restaurant, you know, a three star experience and you want all the trimmings and the experience, then it's going to cost. And so these patients will end up selecting the level which is appropriate for them. But mm -hmm. I think people will judge that on service, on ambiance yeah. experience. It's not the units that count. Right. It's the value added. And the challenge now is people want the resort experience for the bargain basement price, mm. which makes it difficult. <laughs> People's expectations of what they should be getting, mm. irrespective of the price is a little bit of an issue as well, especially in my experience here in Australia. Yeah. You know, we just went for lunch at a very nice fancy restaurant just now near uh, the Opera House. And um, at the end of the meal, we were presented with six uh, petit four. Okay, probably they've taken a bit of time to make that. Very good. But the cost <laughs> to create that was very uh, minimal. It would have been quite trivial, actually, quite modest. So by the same token, if I charge a set price for botulinum toxin, which, in co which covers the entire face. So I identify what all of their um, dynamic needs are and which muscles need to be injected to give them the best possible outcome. Yeah. Then um, I don't mind if I slip in a few extra units here and there as a loss leader um, to make a better result. You know, I think we should always approach that. And by the way, the same goes for fillers. I'll take a loss leader on a filler package. Um, I may gain a syringe because they didn't need that much or I may lose a syringe. Yeah. It's all, it all just goes round and it, it, it'll all level out. I agree. You're selling a result, not yeah. mills. Yeah. What, would you, what would you, I guess if you had a, a new injector that was coming to you for advice on mm. how to approach their consult process or perhaps they've listened to this podcast and I really like what you had to say, yeah. how would I actually go about changing my practice to, to move people in this different direction? The people that are going to start to employ this kind of approach, which is a very much um, a results orientated practice, mm -hmm. um, will be the the most successful injectors in uh, your geographic region. Um, you'll dominate the market. You will become oversold. Um, you won't be able to cope with the demand, frankly, because actually the, the patients and the way that they communicate with each other it becomes like a club. So the referral system is internal. You don't need some market and PR because no one else is doing it. But it's hard to do it from the start because you have to shift the, um, the patient and the consumer habits and behavior. But the minute they start to see the benefit in doing that, they don't care. Yeah. 
I mean, people who have no money still find exactly. funds to buy cigarettes, yeah. to go out yeah. on to the pub on the Friday night, to buy alcohol, all these sorts of things. So if someone really wants it enough. Yeah, exactly. You know, I find it so interesting uh, that uh, the lady who comes um, with a budget for one or two syringes is wearing, uh, you know, Louboutin shoes and has a Hermes handbag. So, you know, the the prioritization there is just kind of all wrong. <laughs> That's how they afforded it. There you go. <laughs> um, so... It's, it's really about a re-education of the patients and not just the doctors and nurses. And I think that you know once we get to that position, it's going to be hugely beneficial to the overall, the, the market and the industry as a whole. Yeah, it's almost like we're cutting it, selling ourselves short a little bit. Definitely. Can we go back to the, I don't know what you called it, like the, the social attributes mm. to, to how people look and how injectors can deliver those. Yeah. So what are your qualities of people? And, and we were talking over lunch about, you know, if you can make someone look, for example, more trustworthy mm. or more happy, yeah. that's going to dominate every aspect of their life once they've left your clinic. Okay. One of the d most disliked people in the world at the moment is Trump. Donald Trump. Trump. <laughs> and Trump has all of the attributes of someone who is mean untrustworthy, dangerous, and also, you know... sulky. Yeah, he looks moody, like he's uh, unapproachable. Now, could we try and break it down? He looks mean because his eyes are permanently pierced, so we can open his eyes by using toxin, plus or minus fillers in the forehead temple and the, uh, the cheek. Um, he looks um, mean around his nose because he has a nasal flare and he has a tip rotation downwards. His lips are inverted like, a, you know, the wicked old witch who's in the woods. And the mean mouth with pursed lips means that he looks uh, like he's uh, untrustworthy as well. And then if you look at his chin and his jowls, he has a chin rotation with a deep labiamental crease, which means that he looks like he has a permanent sulky state. Now, the sad part of this is he actually possesses all of those attributes as a person. Uh, so he deserves <laughs> to look that way. Now, however, Jake, if you were a really wonderful person with a very great and kind soul and you look like that, it's just not um, just, is it? And so that person, when you delete all of those negative attributes, um, they sometimes will cry. Yeah after you've done that for them, because they'll say, I never thought I could achieve that, even with surgery. Yeah. And this is this, uh, you know, form of addiction. They become addicted to you because they can't do without it now. It's interesting. Uh, the, the one patient that I did a transform transformative treatment on, just as you said, mm. was in David's clinic. And it, and it turned into a complaint because she was a quite introverted person, presumably because of how she looked. She was mm. very aged for her age, um, looked tired, miserable, etc. Oh, I remember this one. Yeah. And I mean, it was a spectacular result. I'm not blowing my own trumpet. It was, it was an amazing result. And she got so much attention from friends, family, mm. work, and she didn't know how to cope with wow. that. But it's, it's an illustration of exactly what you say. Yeah. People perceived her as a different person. Right. Totally. So let's uh, also touch on um, the ethnic diversities and the cultural expectations of an aesthetic result. So... Um, Australia is a hugely um, uh, ethnically diverse country, mm. especially in the in the metropolitan areas. So, if we take, for example, Asians and what they are looking to achieve in the majority of cases is uh, a degree of Westernization. And if they're not ready for that, and that they just wanted to have anti-aging treatments, 
and you push them away from their Asian signatures, mm. like, for example, nasal widening or, you know, um, chin retrusion, um, then they will get more than a shock out of that. And actually, this needs this consultation and counselling before you inject them to avoid stuff like that. So there's a lot more going on before you inject them. Um, nowadays because it's much more sophisticated and there's many more factors to consider. Yeah. And do you agree that it's a bit of a stereotype to say that Asians want to have Western features, etc.? There's multiple different Asian of course, yeah. features and you, you've been in the countries. Like yeah. Well, it varies country to country. So, you know, Taiwan, Korea, China, um, Japan, they all share different... Um, um, if you like trends or um, what they perceive as being attractive, so and role models presumably. Exactly. If you look at the f the film stars in all the different countries, they're not they're not the same. Yeah, they have different traits. For example, eyebrow height, and also the apex point of the eyebrow. I mean, if we don't take the time to consider what exactly we should be achieving in a uh, in a patient, we're going to get it so wrong. So in China, by the way, if you generate an apex point, which is a classic, you know, one to one point six one eight. Uh, leaving the tail going down at the at the outer side of the brow in China, they will go after you for that mm -hmm. because they want to have one straight line which is unbroken. One point one six. You're talking about pi. Yeah, or the, uh, yeah, pi, yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So I mean, the great demonstration of, of this weekend was Arthur. He uses calipers mm. to to measure these yeah. ratios, and I've not seen that done before live on stage. I've sort of heard of the concept. Mm. Whereas, are you doing that by eye? Yeah, I do it visually. I mean, to be honest, uh, it's, a, it's a wonderful tool. Um, a, a really good artist, a very good injector who is getting it right based on uh, geometry has it kind of built in. And it's interesting when you're talking about um, by eye, when I'm training my doctors and I'm, you know, rec recruiting them or having them, you know, uh, endorsing them es essentially, um, I'll give them three seconds to tell me exactly what the patient needs. Mm. And if they don't tell me the plan based on that and the aesthetic endpoints, which are based on geometry, they've taken too long because it should be, you should be hardwired to understanding what someone requires. Yeah. yeah. Well, the whole process of analyzing yeah. someone's face yeah. takes like a microsecond. Yeah, and that's microsecond. why you can find someone attractive or not attractive. Well, the reason why I say three seconds, because actually the statistical data on that is 0 0.3 seconds. Mm. It takes 0 0.3 seconds to make a decision of whether or not you like them. But do, do you think doing it by eye, and, and I do it by eye yeah. as well, it, there's, there's a little bit of beauty in the imperfection. You're not mm. aiming for perfect symmetry and yeah. perfect angles. You know, one thing that I've also found out, Jake, is that um, doing it by eye also makes you um, uh, slightly biased to how, what you create. So if you have a certain... Um, <laughs> Signature. A, a signature. You will leave the signature in a lot of these patients. And I do see them and they look like a, they're branded by me. So maybe if we employ a, a more objective way to assess and inject, um, it will avoid that kind of uh, issue. And I guess that would help uh, illustrate to, to patients, you know, it's not your subjective view. There's a measurable goal to this. Mm. Um, which would be easier in a consult process, I guess. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, it's interesting. Someone said to me recently, um, don't you think that all of her patients look like her? Mm, interesting. <laughs> and that can be a good or a bad thing, Jake, because, uh, you know, when we go to these aesthetic uh, meetings, oh, look, this weekend, there's some horrors walking around, aren't there, mate? Yeah. Uh, so, you know, <laughs> uh, if you start to, in if you have a certain aesthetic influence in your patients, which you are doing to yourself, 
it's a vicious negative circle, mm. isn't it? Like but again, art. clients yeah. will self-select yeah, the injector, yeah. so it's a self-fulfilling again. Yeah. I mean, art is subjective, isn't it? Two people can look at the same painting. Yeah. But I guess there is paintings where you just go, yeah. well, there's actually no skill here. There's no artistry. I don't like it and it's, it's, yeah. there's no skill there. Whereas you can you can still appreciate something that you don't like if it's done the right way. When we looked at uh, things like gaze analysis, uh, that's G-A-Z-E by the way. Uh, so when we looked at that, <laughs> the, the concordance uh, of attractive and non-attractive, it's 97%. Mm. So um, even the aesthetically stupid individual still gets it right. Mm. Yeah. yeah. So Raj, we know you're pushed for time. Yeah. We just want to end on one last thing. Where do you think we're going with this? Where's, where's the future of injectables? Well, I, I really think that because of the increase of the quality of medical education, I think the standard of the industri industry will, uh, will also improve. Now, that has to be supported with better regulations and compliance and, and uh, the framework of every single country. But ultimately, the responsibility lies not just with the professionals, but it lies with the, the consumers. And if the consumers start to seek out the best people, then the standards will elevate. Mm. Now, outside of that, then um, I think where we're going to go is um, a lot more adjunct um, and complementary therapies, which are based on technology. I was having dinner with uh, with one of the companies that makes a, uh, an excellent bespoke skincare range recently, and they're using um, they're using an app on uh, smartphones. We had Harry on the podcast. Ah, right. So they're using an app on smartphones to uh, to diagnose the um, incredible. yeah the the dermatological um, uh, requirements of an, every individual, which then generates an electronic prescription, which is signed off by the host doctor, and that. Uh, medication or the cream, the regime is sent out to the patient in a seamless way, almost like an Amazon process. Yeah. So, you know, that that's something that we can't uh, be without for the future if it starts to become introduced. And that's only going to be beneficial, isn't it, for the for the growth of the industry, but also for the uh, the satisfaction of, of our patients and customers. Yeah, I think people are crying out for bespoke, whatever yes. it is. Yeah injectables, skin, body contouring. Yeah. If it's for you, you buy into that. Yeah. yeah. So all things related to, uh, to science, research, and, uh, and technological development are all going to be on the horizon. If not, they're here already. And I think we must embrace that and take the best of what's available to us so that we can have the, uh, the most efficient and successful practices possible. 100%. So um, when are you back in Australia? When can you wow so us again? So we were, uh, after the six syringe challenge the other day with a, a lady who, uh, you know, frankly, was probably about a three out of ten. We managed to get to about an eight. What's it like dating you, by the way? Uh, <laughs> yeah, that's why, that's why I'm single right now. Uh, Sorry, so, love, you're a two. Uh, <laughs> so, um, so, so after the success of that, I was kind of, it was, it, was, um, it was suggested to me that I'm going to be out for the AMAC uh, conference, which I think is going to be the end of April 2020. There's a big Allegan meeting. Yeah, and I'll be back for Aesthetics 2020, of course, with uh, with my man, Stephen Liu. Excellent. So, uh, yeah, I mean, I love this place. I, I feel like I've been part of the furniture for a long time. Uh, it's really good to be back. Cool. So how do people um, 
get in contact with you if they want to reach out or send you an uh, email. Best, or yeah, the best, way to, best way to contact me is just going to be through my website, which is just rajaquilla.com. Uh, there'll be an inquiry form on there. And that if that can be related to just inquiries, but if you uh, wanted to take part of ma- in masterclasses or I have an extensive online uh, webinar yeah. series on there, they can do that too. And you're on uh, social media, Instagram, all the good stuff? Yeah, yeah, it's just my name, all one word, lowercase. Excellent. Okay, awesome. Thanks for your time. I know you're busy. And Oh, my pleasure. Yeah, absolutely. Fantastic. Thanks, man. Glad we squeezed you in.